We are this morning, um, if you are new to our church, we have we are been going through the book of First Peter. And um, the the series titled is Living in the Light of Christ. And um, this has been a book that um, I hope it's been encouraging to you as we've gone through it, this letter. Um, it speaks very clearly uh, of and acknowledges the hardship of the Christian life. And I think that's, that's encouraging. A lot of times as Christians, we've said this a lot of times as Christians, as the church, we don't, we don't do it. We downplay it sometimes. We, you know, when we're talking to other people, even unbelievers, we want to talk like, oh, you know, I'm a Christian, everything's great now, and look how, look how wonderful I'm doing. And maybe we have that, that temptation to, to uh, present ourselves as the, be- the, best, the best version of ourselves. Um, in this church, we, that's not what we're trying to do. Uh, we're not trying to be the worst version of ourselves. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Uh, but we are seeking to be honest and, and, and real. Um, you know, to, to, to acknowledge that we struggle. We're sinners. Every, every week we, can, we confess our sins corporately. That, that, implied in that is that we're acknowledging that every week there's sin to confess. And there's sin that needs to be forgiven. And, and uh, we don't really have to wait a whole week for that, to, for that to accumulate, right? Um, but this, this, this book has talked about it, this letter. He's really talked about the reality of, of, of suffering, the reality of hardship, the reality of persecution in the Christian life. But, but equally the reality of God's, God's plan, of God using that. God's faithfulness, the glory, he, he, just talking and gushing over Christ and Him crucified, the, the hope, the, the, un, the undying hope we have in Him. And so this, this Sunday we're bringing that to a close. And as we, I'm about to read this, I just want to acknowledge that, you know, as we, this last section, verses 8 through 14, we, we find out that this man, uh, Silvanus, uh, some translations inter- know him to be Silas. Um, we see him before in Scripture, but he's been writing this down, that Peter's been dictating this letter. And I don't know, just can you imagine, you know, being the, 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 the one writing down Peter's words? You know, like, you, I mean, think, I just, I've been thinking about that, you know, like as, he's, like, as he's writing, he's going, oh, that's good. That's, you know, like, <laughs> you know, it was... Was P- how you know when 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 Peter wrote it? How how uh, aware was he that the Spirit was inspiring it? You know, and how aware was Sylvanus here aware that this is a word from God? You know, you know. I, I can't help but thinking, you know, when he's when he's writing, he's coming to verses, and um, though you have, you know. One verse eight. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible, filled with glory. Oh wow! Yeah, go ahead. Say that again. Well, that was good. Okay, you know. <laughs> wow, that that's wonderful. Um, when he, when he was you know another one. Um, he's he's you know he's he's talking about. Oh, where's that verse? I was wanting to say. <laughs> Verse 18 of chapter 3, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit. And you're going, 
oh, that was such a good summary. Oh, wow. You know, like, was he experiencing the joy of that as he was writing it? And as I was thinking about just dictating, first of all, I'm not a quick writer. That'd be a lot of pressure, right? You know? Surely Peter didn't go. He'd go, hey, I, I missed it. Say that again. Oh, I don't remember. No, I, anyway. <laughs> I'm sure it was, you know, much better than that. But, uh, but just think about that. And now... Think about how exciting it must have been to hear that from the first time from the apostle's mouth. But if you can get in that mind space, that that mindset, why is it any less exciting than hearing it right now? You know? Like, if you could go, wow, what an experience for Savannah's writing... Wow, what an experience for us to, to have this letter and to have these 66 books and to hear from God. The inspired Word of God through the prophets and the apostles telling us who He is and who Jesus is. So I want you to hear it in that way. I don't think I'm Peter, but it's the same Word. Kept, preserved, translated in our own language. What grace, what power, what amazing thing this is. And so, hear it as is Sylvanus writing it down for the first time. I think that's a good goal for us this morning. So with that said, let me pray and then we'll read God's Word. Lord God, thank you for this letter. Thank you for what we've heard over the last many months. We've been encouraged by the Gospel, encouraged in your love, encouraged in your sovereign plan, your sovereign care, and the promise of glory. Um, Thank you for the way this so eloquently... um, summarizes and brings all this together, these last few verses. Um, We pray all this, that we would understand it. We pray that your spirit, you would um, bring bring, uh, clarity to it, to my preaching, to our hearing, and that we really would be changed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. There are three um, three commands, three points that are made here in this text. Um, the first is we as Christians we need to prepare to fight. Prepare to fight. Second, we need to prepare for victory. And thirdly, 
We need to stand firm together. Prepare to fight. Prepare for victory. And stand firm together. Um, we start out with this this really, uh, you know, this really scary start imagery. We're reminded of the adversary, the devil. And we, we read here in verse 8 that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? Um, it's, not, it's not unusual for the, uh, in the Scriptures for enemies to be described as predators. Um, in Psalm 7, 1 through 2, the psalmist describes his adversaries as a lion. He says, uh, this is Psalm 7, 1 through 2, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. Also, this is, there's many other places, but Psalm 58, 6. O God, break the teeth of their mouths, tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away when he aims his arrows. Let them be blunted. He goes on, verse 8. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. So here we have the psalmist acknowledging enemies, acknowledging the power of their enemies. But here Peter uses that, that image, that imagery to describe the enemy, Satan. Why does he need to remind God's people of there being an enemy? Why does he need to remind them of the reality of the devil? The, 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 the thing is, and I think maybe then it is now, our culture downplays that. Um, maybe even our denomination downplays that a little bit. We, we focus, we want so much to, we don't want somebody to go, well, the devil made me do it. We focus a lot on our own sin, on our own, our own fallenness, our own brokenness, our own, the sin that's in our own hearts, and that's real. That's, that's, that's the real enemy. That's a real problem is, is the sin, that indwelling sin, even in the, in the Christian. That, that's something we need to acknowledge. The, this, we acknowledge the world and the brokenness of the world and those that are unregenerate, un, you know, that are not Christians, and they're, and they're evil and they're, and they're designs against us. But, but really, you know, the father of lies... The first enemy is Satan, is the devil. Um, he reminds us because we need to be aware. We need to be um, on guard, as he says. Sober-minded, watchful. Because a lot of us, a lot of times we like to act like there isn't opposition. And we forget. Um, Edmund Clowney says, presumably Satan... Like a lion, it says here he's roaring and after us, and it's very obvious. It's an obvious attack, but he says, presumably, like a lion, um, Satan, like a lion, may hunt by stealth as well by, as by terror. He cannot ask for better cover than the illusion that he does not exist, or that his comeback is mere, merely metaphorical. Jesus came to expose as well as to destroy the works of the devil. 
Satan is real. We see it in the Scriptures. We see it in, in Job. We looked at that. He's, he's the accuser. You know, he's, he's serving as a, as a prosecutor, looking at Job, saying, there's no way this guy... The only reason this guy loves you, the only reason this guy's faithful, is not because you've done a new work in him. It's because you've given him everything he wants. He's just being selfish. You see, he... He's an accuser. He's the enemy. And he's, his, his goal is not for justice. It's not to, for truth. But his goal is to discredit God's Word and destroy God's works. And we realize that he can even use God's Word, right? And as, as Jesus is in, is in the wilderness, as he's, as he's fasting and, and, and he's tempted by Satan, Satan himself shows up and uses and twists God's Word. That's what he did with Eve in the garden. Just use what did God say? Well, he said that, okay, well, does he really say that? It's subtle. But you're like, a lion devouring you doesn't seem subtle, but it's by subtle means. If you've ever watched the Animal Planet or Discovery Channel, does the lion just show up to the herd and roar? <laughs> does he announce himself? That would be defeating the purpose. It's subtle, it's sneaky. And so he's, yes, he's there to devour, but it's usually at the last minute that that antelope or caribou or, I'm going to name all the animals of the Serengeti. No, I'm not. But whatever it is, you know, it's usually like, "Uh uh-oh, and they're running and it's happening. Death is behind them. The enemy is behind them and they're running for their lives. Be watchful. Be aware. This is, this is, there's a real enemy. There's a real devil And though Jesus has defeated him on the cross, though Jesus, as it says in Luke 10, verse 18, saw his foe fall like lightning from heaven, we know that his rage and fury is even more intense. Because of that, he's lost. He knows it. He thought he won. He thought, I'm putting, I'm killing the promised Offspring. I'm, I'm, I'm undoing, I'm going to thwart God's will. I'm going to, this promised offspring of the woman that would crush my head, I'm going to kill him. And it was by that very act that he, that he was crushed. That happened. That's real. Satan is still working. Though he's on a leash, though he's, though he's ultimately defeated, he's even, his rage and fury is more intense. So what do we do? What do you do when a lion is after you? Most of you don't know. I don't, I've never had a lion after me, right? Um, I did watch, I was watching something, it was like this, you know, this, this reporter by the cage, like, talking about a lion. And she was like, hey, buddy. And he goes, Burr! and she goes, oh, and she jumps off camera, you know? Like, even, there was, a, there was, she was clearly safe, but it was scary. What do you do when that happens? What do you do uh, when that happens? Well, he says, this is, he gives us instructions. Uh, be sober-minded and watchful. Be sober-minded and watchful. And then he also says, in verse 9, have a firmly established faith. Be sober-minded and watchful and have a firmly established faith. This is not the first time that Peter has used that term of being sober-minded. We think, well, just don't get drunk. That's, not, that's, no, that's, a, that's, that's good. That's biblical. <laughs> Don't get drunk. Be aware. Be of your right mind. 
but also have your mind, he talks about it elsewhere, have your mind set on, on Christ. Have your mind set on the gospel. I mean, we gotta, we got to die to this thing of like, you, okay, okay, you've been to church. We got, we, we, on Sundays is for church talk and for gospel talk. But then the other six days a week, you've got to be in touch with reality. It's about work, about getting things done. You know, some of us think that way. That's, we have that kind of sacred, secular distinction. But when he says be sober-minded, be reasonable, he's saying remember the truth of reality. That there is Jesus Christ who died and rose again, who is coming again, and He sits on the throne. You're securing Him. That's being reasonable. That's being in touch with reality. Remember that. When we, when we start to think that life's about other things, that's when we're not being sober-minded. When it's all about work, or all about my to-do list, or all about the kids doing the right thing. It's, no, it's the ultimate being sober-minded. going, everything is in control by my sovereign, loving God. I'm resting in Him. That's being reasonable. That's being clear-minded, sober-minded. And when you realize that, when you realize that, then... That's what he says he means by standing firm in it. If a lion is coming at you, no one says, turn around and do this. Here, go look it up. No one says, just, just, you know, face him. Turn around and, you know, uppercut is the key. That doesn't say that. Right? like, you need to get out of there. If, I'm, if I don't have a really big gun and a lion is after me, I need help. I need someone to deal with this thing. And that's what when we're sober-minded, when we're clear, when we're standing firm in the faith, not I'm being so faithful that this devil can't touch me. No, I'm realizing, I'm acknowledging that Jesus is my righteous protector. He is my king. He is the one that can deliver me. He is the one that's between me and the enemy. And I need to look to him when those accusing thoughts, when this idea of what are the schemes of the devil, I do think he still works that way. Maybe not him, he himself, the devil himself isn't, again, he's not omnipresent, he's not omniscient, he's not like God. It's not yin and the yang, equally good, equally... No, he is a creature, but he does have minions. He does have, he does have other demons that work with him, and they do accuse, they do seek to destroy what God has made. They seek to convince Christians that, that the gospel isn't enough. But we are to stand firm, not just in our own strength and our own faithfulness, but stand firm in the reality of who Jesus is. And He can deal with this enemy. He has dealt with him. And He will ultimately throw him and death itself into the abyss. He says, stand firm. And this word, this word for standing firm uh, is, is only used one time in the New Testament. Here in, here in 1 Peter. But in the Greek translation of the Old Testament... Um, and it's used. It's used of talking about how the Messiah. It's describing the Messiah. This is from Isaiah fifty six through seven. He says, "I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have here it is set my face like a flint." 
And I know that I shall not be put to shame. That's the only other place. This is where, Paul, this is where Peter would have, he would have known the, the Greek Old Testament. And that's where he's thinking. I need to be, we need to be like the Messiah, like Christ Himself. In the face of opposition, set my face like a flint. Firm. Established. Knowing I shall not be put to shame. What? Because of our strength? Because of what we can do? No, but because God is in charge. God is the faithful. God, Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, the Messiah is looking to God Himself as His help. And so that's the picture. We're looking. We're setting our face like flint. Not in that we're going to stare down the lion. We're going to defeat the devil on our own. But we're firm in that what, who God is and His strength. We are weak, but Jesus is strong. That's where we're firm. That's where our gaze is. James 4 he says this in verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Then it says this, this is a parallel uh, to what we just read, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So what's the key to resisting the devil according to James? Submitting yourselves to God and drawing near to God. That's the bookends of resist the devil and he will flee from you. Is submitting ourselves to God, drawing near to God, who has drawn near to us. That is how we fight. That is how we do it. And we're encouraged also in this passage that another way we fight is knowing that the suffering, the fight, will not last. It will come to an end. Verse 10, after you have suffered a little while. You know, I've talked to a lot of people. I do a lot of hospital visits. I do talk to a lot of people after surgeries and procedures. Camille had, her, you know, years ago she had her jaws broken. Her upper jaw and her lower jaw. Thanks, Jay. Uh, no, thank you. It's been good. Uh, but, you know, she knew that it would be, what, eight weeks, ten weeks, just a little while. But when you wake up from surgery in those first, that first week, it doesn't feel like a little while, does it? I just want to acknowledge that. I don't, I don't, Peter's not being like, oh, just stop your complaining. He's not doing that. When you're in the thick of it, when you're in trial, when you're really grieving, when you're really hurting, when it's really hard, and someone goes, oh, it'll be over soon. You want to punch them, right? I'm not going to punch the lion, but I want to punch you, right? I know. That's not what Peter's trying to do here. He's, but he, he wants you, he wants us to, in a sense, to, to back out, to get the panoramic view of life. I've used this illustration before. It's the one I try to, that's what I, it's my mind's eye. When I'm like, when I have tunnel vision on this problem or this struggle or this sin, and I'm like, oh, you know, I have to, I have to go, Lord, help me back out. And see your plan from the beginning to end. And know that you love me and I'm in that plan. And you will see us through this. This, this hard thing in a friendship. This, this, this adversity. This, this con conflict you may be having. Uh, uh, trouble at work. Unemployment. Uh, a struggle in your marriage. A besetting sin that just got... It. He's not going, oh, it's just a little while. He's, but he goes, God is at work. 
And victory is coming. We, we're, we're, we live in, in, rea- in the reality and the acknowledgement of this sure hope of victory. Again, not by us, but by, through Jesus Christ. It says here, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ. He's called you into this eternal glory that because of our union with Him, we know that this sad world will be undone. We know that our struggles with sin, our struggles with physical hurts, our struggles with persecution, all that He's laid out in in this book, it, it will Cease that there will be a, a final bell to the good fight of faith. There's a finish line to the, to the race. It'll be over. And this hope, this hope of God's sovereign grace is what sustains us. And Peter's talked about this again and again, if you remember. Like, this isn't new. Look at chapter 1. Verse 7, he says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 11 of chapter 1. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. 4.13 but rejoice in so far as you share share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed again and again he talks about suffering but again and again and again Peter talks about the assurance of victory Jesus has overcome he came he will come again what will he do for us in this time what is he doing for us what will be what will be the, the the result of this of his coming in glory? Well, he says it. Look at it, verse. Um, and this is wonderful to think about. In a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And I want to say this is. This is what he's going to this is going to be fully brought to completion when he comes again but I want just you know he's doing it now. Again that's another point of this book is that right now even through the adversity through the trials he's doing that. He's restoring you, he's confirming you, he's strengthening you, he's establishing you and he will see that to completion. What does he mean by restore? The word, the Greek word here means to put in order. To put in order. When I say put in order, that's convicting to me. Because I think about my side of the room and my bedroom. Uh, my wife is neat. I'm not. Um, sometimes clean clothes don't make it back to the closet. But I have this lovely chair for that purpose. Uh, I don't know if you... I should, I should grow up. I know, I'm 45. But still, I just... Uh, there's things that, I, you know, it's my life in order. You know, you think about your to-do list. You think about the, uh, uh, you know. But who's, who's the one really, beyond, beyond rooms, just me, Grant himself. Like, who's putting me in order? I'm not really good at that. But who is? God. God. Not, not just so that I'll be neat and better dressed or whatever. Not in order that way. But what? Just 
Making me have my priorities in order. Helping me to know what's true. Helping me to prioritize life. To, 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 to remember His Scriptures more. To, to, to be conformed to the image of Jesus more and more. He's doing that in me. He's doing that in you. He's doing it through what we experience now. And He will bring it to completion. You will be put in order, restored, uh, uh, and, 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 and made perfect when He comes again. The second thing is He confirms. Confirms us. And, and, and really what that is getting, getting at there is making us, reminding us that we have a firm, fixed position. A lot of us, you know, some of us more than others struggle with, am I really okay? And, and we struggle with Going back and forth is what what establish what what confirms me what establishes me is it is it my good works is it how much I've prayed is it what I've done for God or is it what God has done for me and then and then can God really have can God really love me that much does He really love me am I really in Christ am I really but even God's working now to confirm to help you know. You have a firm foundation in Jesus. And there will be a day for these who are, you who are, that is your beset, that's your struggle, that's, that's defined your Christian life as a struggle with assurance. I want you to know that there will be a day when there's no doubt anymore. The third thing is He will strengthen us. Um, again, this is, this is uh, the only place in the New Testament where this verb is used. This verb for strengthen. But the, the noun version appears in Job. In, the, in, in Job. And, and he's there is speaking about the strength of a lion. That's interesting, isn't it? I don't think that's an accident. You know, Peter's talking about devil roaming lying, ready to devour. And then he says, but God's going to strengthen you. And the only time this word or a word like it's used to talk about the strength of the lion. I don't think I'm going too far, jumping ahead, but like, who else is called a lion? Jesus. Revelation 5, 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. We just sang that. I don't know if you... Did you read that? Did you pick it up? See, it just happened. Okay, that was the perfect song for this passage because there it is. It's... There is one who's greater, more powerful, stronger. And do you remember that, that, that vision of... Of John, when he's he knows that the scroll is the answer, that if we could just open this thing, that everything would be okay, that God's plan would come unfurled and all would be made right. And he's looking around at the at the at the angels and the archangels and the seraphim and the cherubim, and he's and he's in glory, and he's and no one can do it, and he starts to weep. And then the line of Judah is here; he can open it. He can do it. He will do it. And there's rejoicing in heaven. For only Christ can do 
can establish, can, can strengthen, can, can, this lion, this strong lion, stronger than the devil, will do this. And he's going to make us strong like that, strong in Christ, strong as this lion of Judah. And then finally, the third, the fourth thing is he's going to, what, establish. And I'm convinced here he's talking about not so much our, our faith like uh, in, our, in our own salvation, but establish the new heavens, the new earth, and His people. When He opens the seals, all the seals, when He comes again, everything will be made anew. You, me, the universe, and Jesus will be on the throne. That is what He, that's what Jesus, the Messiah Himself, will do. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And then the only proper response is what? The only proper response to this wonderful reality is praise, is adoration. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Again, written first century. Written when the church is tiny. Written when the government and, and, and the Jewish people are, are attacking them. And He's saying, Jesus has dominion. He's the king. Even when it doesn't feel like it. The gospel makes us sober-minded, firm in the faith. And when we realize the reality of who God is and what He's doing, we, we praise Him. So we, we're, we, we're prepared to fight in the strength of the Lord. We're prepared for victory that's coming about by Jesus. And then we stand firm together. And that's how I see this last part. You know, I'm not going to talk about all the people here. But look at this final greeting. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. What is this true grace of God? It's everything He's written. It's the hope of glory. It's the assurance of God's rule and reign. It's the, it's the, it's the sure reality of, the, of Jesus and Him crucified. It's also the reality that life is hard, that you're going to be called to suffer. But God's going to use that suffering to, glory, to bring glory to Himself, to, to make you more into His image. This isn't as good as it gets. All this is by God's grace. But look, what he, he's not doing it alone. He's not doing it alone, is he? Stand firm together. He mentions here, Silvanus. He mentions here, she who's at Babylon. Mark, we believe that's John Mark. He's mentioned throughout the scriptures. And he says, greet one another with the kiss of love. That there is this, as he says in verse 9, this, all these sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Again, this is something we are called to do. And you, again, as, as Americans, as Western culture, you know, we're products of this. We, we very much think individualistically. Okay, I, I've read this book. This is what God's given for me to do. I'm going to go do it. Peter doesn't even write this letter by himself. <laughs> Paul, you know, this was, it was common in the day because, you know, maybe they didn't have good handwriting. But there were people that, that that's what they did for a living. That's what that, they were good at it. But he needed people. He needed the brotherhood. 
He's doing ministry with Mark, as you remember, was rejected by Paul. Remember that? You know, Barnabas, this is his relative. Hey, uh, Paul, I think Mark should come. Well, Mark, Mark's kind of flaked out. I don't want to go with Mark. I want Mark to come with us. So they split ways. And then later on, Paul goes, sings, you know, acknowledges the faithfulness and the help that John Mark's given. This Mark who's there with Peter, we believe that Mark, this is the one who penned. We believe that, you know, he's, that when he wrote this gospel account that he's getting it from Peter because again he's he's doing ministry with Peter we think a lot of that came from Peter's uh, first-hand view uh, of of the works of Jesus this woman uh, some people think it's his wife that's with him and Babylon is not the historical Babylon but he's using that as a as a reference to Rome the Babylon of the day and if you read Revelation, you realize this imagery of the world and the worldliness of the world and, and, and the fallen world is Babylon and, 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 and the new heavens and new earth, the Mount Zion, uh, the kind of stand at odds against each other. God's bringing judgment on that. And he's basically using that as a phrase of going, you know, Rome is like our Babylon. We're in exile. We're out here. We're in this, this enemy territory. And... Um, but Jesus is still in control. God is still on the throne. God is still with us. Just as he was with his people in Babylon in exile, he's with us now. But some think it's the she is, is his wife. Some think it's another, um, another uh, Christian that's with him there. We're not sure. Others have said it. Maybe he's referring to the church itself. All the elect. But he's acknowledging at the end of this letter that he's not alone. And we're not alone. We are part of this brotherhood, this sisterhood. We're a family. Which is why he ends with, greet one another with the kiss of love. So I want you to stand up. Turn to you. No, I'm not. Okay, I'm joking. I've been waiting on that joke the whole series, by the way. What does he mean by that, though? Okay? Because everybody's like, I'm not doing that. Who, who, who are the people you kiss? Should be very few. <laughs> if you're going, well... It's, uh, anyway. <laughs> uh, if you're French, it's okay. But, you know, you kiss all the time, right? But what is it? In, in the culture, it's, it's, a, it's, just, a, it's just, I love you. It's, a, it's, it's like a hug. It's a handshake. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, what is it? It's a, it's a term of a, it's a, a way to demonstrate affection. And in our culture, the only people you kiss people in your family, right? I kiss my wife, right? That's different. I kiss, I kiss my, my, my children. Not so much Joseph or Nathan anymore. They don't like it for some reason. Anyway, um, yeah, I made it weird. You're welcome. Anyway, uh, but it's a term of affection. So, again, it's not saying, okay, now this has got Peter's command. I mean, there is no, look, do you see any wiggle room here? Greet one another with a kiss of love. Is there... What's the point, though? Culturally, that was the way you showed affection. That was the way you showed you were family. That's the way you said, we're in this together. I love you. And I think the equivalent for us today is just to say things like that. We need, the community of Jesus Christ, we need to say, we need to acknowledge that there's people in this room, we're called to love. And, and if, we, if our hearts aren't knit to theirs yet, and that's a process, you know, Getting to know each other, loving each other. That needs to be a goal. And it needs to be fully felt and expressed in each local body of believers. Peter's saying, 
act like you love each other. That's really what he's saying. Did your parent ever told you that? Act like you love each other. You ever, your mom and dad ever made you hug? Okay, now hug it out. Okay. You know? But act like you love each other. Because we're in it together. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. He's made us family. Hugs. Good. Not all of us like hugs in here. (laughs) But saying, you mean a lot to me. I'm grateful for you. I love you. I'm glad you're my brother. I'm glad you're my sister. How can I help you? That's what he's getting at. Peter had Sylvanus. He had his wife. He had this fellow worker, Mark. He had the church in Rome. We have one another to do what? To help us stand firm. To help us realize that the only source of peace and joy is in God, is in Jesus Christ. That's why he ends with peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is where we find comfort. This is where we find the shalom. Not just a peaceful feeling, but a wholeness, a fullness. This is, is being having our minds set on the gospel. Standing firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace of God. And we get to do it together. You get to help me do that, and I get to help you do that. And that's a beautiful thing. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for this, your word. Help us to be watchful. Strengthen us. Establish us. Confirm us. And help us to love one another as family. To begin and to grow more and more in our love for each other as we grow more and more in understanding your deep, abiding, infinite love for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.